It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Podcast special interview with Scott Buss regarding the heart of worship. Welcome to the Message to Kings podcast. This is your host, Brett Houston. On this episode of Message to Kings, we will be exploring that mysterious phrase that David was a man after God's heart. Beyond just being faithful to God, we want to explore the unique part of David that was so out of place in the Old Testament, the worship aspect of King David. How David was a worshiper, the strange scene where he worships before Saul to ease his demons, and eventually David's tabernacle. In this episode, I'm going to interview Scott Buss to help explain this part of David's life. Scott is an accomplished, professional, classically trained musician who has dedicated his life to worshiping God and training others to do the same. I was impressed when a mutual friend of ours told me how Scott rejected worldly fame in his life to move to Northwest Arkansas upon God's calling on his life and began a worship and dance academy to train others and to truly dedicate his life to worshiping God and not pursuing the fame of the world that those with his skills could have easily pursued. Here's an excerpt from the back cover of his 2010 book, Connect the Generations. Doctors Scott and Carolyn Buss, authors of numerous books, recording artists, co-founders, and directors of the Institute of Music, Worship, and Arts, and All Nations House of Prayer, connect artists, teachers, missionaries, speakers. Their passionate love for music has led them to the nations, where they had ushered people from varying ethnic, generational, and denominational backgrounds into the presence of the Lord as they played in great concert halls, ministered in numerous churches and schools, entertained thousands in elegant hotel ballrooms, performed in the historic East Wing of the White House and other governmental buildings. The key point is not what they have accomplished or where they have been, but that they have played their violin and piano no differently for the audience of a few in the remotest of mission fields, or the small local gathering. The reason being is because they, like Joanne Sebastian Bach, minister unto the greater audience wherever they are, and that is God Almighty, the honored King. Now you can probably see why he would be considered an expert for these questions. Now we take you to the interview. On this episode of Message to Kings, I will be speaking with Scott Buss regarding the heart of David and what made him so different. Scott, thanks for joining me today for this episode of Message to Kings. When it comes to understanding and speaking and finding the language for the worship aspect of King David, I could think of no one better to speak to. 
Before we talk about David, can you tell the audience about yourself, Scott? Well, I was brought up in a musical family. My mother played the violin. My grandfather played the violin. It seemed like God had uh, destined me to also become a violinist. And I pursued that, uh, attended the American Conservatory of Music in Chicago, studying with uh, the man who I had been named after. His name was Scott Willits. My mother had studied with him. So it was a great honor when I was about 15 years old to come under his tutelage. But playing all the concert music, and, and I had opportunities where I soloed with, with orchestras and won contests, but that did not bring a fullness of satisfaction to me. In fact, the Lord made it plain to me that he had a different path for me to pursue than the concert stage. And we, as I began to search that out, I found out that there was a higher dimension of music than that which I had experienced. And I had played most of the great concertos of Tchaikovsky and Brahms and Beethoven and Glazunov and all of these different things and enjoyed them immensely, uh, knew what it was to, to play with my heart and then all of a sudden have given so much that I would be emotionally completely drained when I was done playing. And it was a joy to do that, and, and it was a great experience. But it still didn't satisfy something deep down inside. Now, I had been brought up in a Christian home and had a relationship with the Lord and had that through my college years and was able to be an encouragement to some of my other musician friends who frequently went through periods of real real depression. And for the most part, I was spared from all of that, and I thank God for that. But somewhere along the line, I learned the difference between playing music for God and music to God. And... I had the opportunity to play music for the Lord. In fact, at one point I thought, well, maybe God just wants me to be a Christian artist and uh, do a lot of mix of classical music and special arrangements of church songs. And, and, and to some extent, uh, my wife and I still do that. We just went to Trinidad in January and they asked us to do an hour and a half concert. They wanted classical and church music. But the whole realm of Christian music sometimes gets captured by the word entertainment. And I found that there's a different kind of entertainment that is greater, and that is to learn to entertain God with our praise and when we do that, he entertains us with his presence. 
And it was a whole different experience for me to begin to learn that. And I remember I was getting ready for, for a master's degree exam on the violin. And I had been practicing hours and hours. And, but the week before the exam, I had been involved in some very powerful meetings in Chicago. And uh, I had been attending these meetings every night as well as still doing my classes at the conservatory and trying to squeeze my practice in to get ready for the exam. And uh, finally, the last night before my exam, I thought, I better not go to the meeting tonight. I'd better stay home and practice. And the next morning, I went into the, the school library. It was the only room that was open. Nobody was in there. It was so early in the morning. And I thought, I need to warm up before this exam. But I felt this drawing to just spend time in the presence of God. And I practiced a little, but something in my spirit just began to rise up to worship the, the Lord. And as I did that, I became very aware of His presence. And I went in and played a very beautiful piece of music that was one of the pieces I had to play on the exam. It was a piece called Poem, written by the French composer Ernest Chausson. And it's a piece I dearly love to play. And uh, it's a very moving and beautiful piece of music. But this time when I walked in to that exam room, I walked in with the peace of God upon me and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I played the piece probably better than I'd ever played it before. And my teacher, at a lesson a couple of days later, said, how come you never played that for me at a lesson like you played it the other day at the mm -hmm. exam? And I was able to explain to him that I had touched something of the presence of God that was unique. And I began to find my heart drawn to music that wasn't just, just from the realm of, um, oh, shall we say, heartfelt Christian music. Uh, you've got your gospel quartets and um, different things like that, that that people love to go and attend, and uh, sometimes they're, they're very inspiring. But I found my heart being drawn to find music that was specifically in praise to God. And I began to search through some of the old hymns, and I found that many of them were great declarations of uh, the foundations of the faith and had many times were very powerful words of Christian testimony of somebody's experience. And out of that experience, they had written their song. And many times they were things about the greatness of God and his work in their lives. 
But I found that very few of the songs in the hymn book were songs that specifically were songs sung to the Lord. Most of them were songs about the Lord or about somebody's experience with the Lord. And I don't want to um, say those aren't important because they are. But I was beginning to experience something different in my playing and in my just my, my personal devotion time that led me to experience what happens when we praise and worship the Lord. And that was a new awareness of His presence in my life. And I began to greatly desire the presence of the Lord. And so out of that, my wife and I began to, we raised up a school, felt directed to the Lord to raise up a school, which is called the Institute of Music, Worship, and the Arts. And we teach many of the great classics. We teach people classical technique and give them a strong technical foundation. But we also, as a goal in our teaching, is to teach the students what it means to play their instruments in the presence of the Lord and to play their instruments to Him. And we've seen students, when they did that for the first time, we watched the Spirit of God descend upon them. And it was so incredible to see what God would do in their hearts. And we began taking young people to the nations. And these young people were young people that we had taught about praise and worship. And so we would take them, actually we would take a cross-generational team from of representing all, all ages really, everything from children to three years on up to adults. And we found this cross-generational representation of praise and worship to have incredible impact in places that we would go in other nations. The people would respond to what we did. And we were in meetings that would sometimes last three, four hours long, where the worship would just go on and on and on. And the presence of the Lord would be so thick you could almost cut it with a knife if there was such a thing as being possible. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that, that I think has uh, been the main occupation that we have been involved with. Yes, we love to teach and impart technical musical skills. But more than that, we like to impart the experience we have had and the, the joy that we have had of learning to play and to sing to the Lord and to become recipients 
of his presence in return. See, that's the part of your story that moves me, that you gave up being famous in the world's eyes, that, that you decided and chose to follow God's purpose for your life. And I believe that qualifies you to, to help answer this question. Um, what made David different than anyone before him? I believe David, above anything else that he did, learned what it was to be a, a true worshiper. You can imagine him out there with the sheep. He was tending his father's sheep while his brothers went off to war. But David was a minstrel. You know, he played the harp. He wrote many songs of praise to the, the Lord. The book of Psalms is very full of the life that he lived as a worshiper of God. David also was a man of the word. He said, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Becoming a worshiper isn't just about getting this spiritual high emotionally or something like that, although people many times experience that. But it takes us to the foundation of the word of God. And David's worship is strongly mixed with the Word of God. And before he became king of Israel, he got acquainted with Samuel. And of course it was Samuel that anointed David to become the king. It's very interesting to note that when David was anointed, he was anointed to also become a student of the Word because every king was commanded of the Lord to have their own personal copy of all of the known written word of God at that time and to be a student of it and that was to be a foundation for his government. David in his encounters with the Lord had something built into him that had incredible foundation. So when his father asks him to go take some food and supplies and things out to his brothers that were out in, in, in a battle, David gets out there and he sees this giant, who we know, know as Goliath, speaking blasphemous things about the God of Israel. But David... He wasn't as big as King Saul. 
fact, some people the scripture speaks of King Saul as having been, been head and shoulders above the other people. He was a head and shoulders man. <laughs> David was not of Saul's size physically, but he was a giant of a man inside. And I personally believe that was because he had spent so much time in the presence of God that he had encountered the God who was above all things and who created all things. And the God that put a holy boldness in him that he could go and confront this giant. And I believe the anointing and ability to do that came out of his worship experience. And David many times you can read in the Psalms even when Saul was was trying to pursue him and kill him he would write songs and sing them and sing his praise sing the Lord's praises and these were a strength to him and God sustained him through his word and through the praises of, of singing his word David was able to walk through things and you read and the, the fascinating thing is the Psalms were originally musical compositions and uh, the Hebrew people sang these even in a yeshiva, yeshiva where they study Hebrew, Hebrew the uh, students would sit across the table from one another and literally chant the scriptures to one another. Mm. And so David was just full of the word. And when he first became king over Hebron, and um, he ruled from Hebron, during a transition time. It wasn't like like uh, he had sought to become king, but when David, when Saul died, they brought him to Hebron, first of all, and those that had been following close to him asked him to be king over them. And he ruled from Hebron for seven years. But at the end of seven years, he went and conquered Jerusalem and which had been which had been ruled um, by different tribe of people, and um, when he conquered Jerusalem like that, all of a sudden all of the tribes came to him. All of the tribes of Israel came to him and said, "We want you to rule over us." And it's amazing that one of the first decisions that David made was to go and get the Ark of the Covenant. And any of you that ever saw Raiders of the Lost Ark know that that, that particular piece of spiritual furniture was represented to be a great source of power. Well, it was more than just a source of power. It was a type of God's throne in the earth. And it was kept in the, a particular portion of the old tabernacle 
that was divided into three compartments, the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. And the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies. But that Ark had something on it called the Mercy Seat, and that symbolized the throne of God. And when the children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years after they left Egypt, the glory of God would shine from, from the ark up into the sky like a flame of fire. And sometimes in the day it would be like, like a heavy cloud of God's glory would rest down over it and be a protection to the people as a shade in the heat of the summer, in the heat of the desert. So that glory was a manifestation of the presence of God. And that ark was lost in battle by Samuel's well, not Samuel, it was by Eli, who was the high priest of Israel. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, took the ark into a battle with the Philistines. And they had been leaving, leading a life of perversity and taking advantage of the people, defiling their sacrifices, sleeping with some of the young women on the side, and literally defiling their position as priests of the Most High God. Their father, Eli, was the high priest. And they took the ark out into battle, and the ark was lost. The Philistines had a great deal of trouble with the ark. Um, they had all kinds of things happen, even to the the point of uh, I, I. It says that God smote them into the hinder parts because they they looked into the, the ark. I think they had had hemorrhoids or something like that. Yeah, but did. it was a serious problem for them. And they said we got to get rid of this thing, and they they put it on a cart, a new cart that they built, pulled by by. Um, a mother cow that had a couple of calves they said we're going to take this cow from her calves and if this ark truly belongs to the God of Israel that mother mother is not going to seek to be back with her calves she's going to take it where it needs to go and sure enough the cow crying out lowing as she went took that cart back into the land of Israel. And it was taken into the home of a priest, or of a Levite, by the name of Adinadab. And it was kept there. He and his family were in charge of the ark for a number of years. Saul, Saul was king for 40 years, but he did not have a heart to to restore the ark to the tabernacle. Now the amazing thing is, when David became king, he understood what the ark signified. 
because he was a worshiper. And he desired the presence of the, of the Lord. He even wrote, One thing have I desired, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to behold the beauty of the Lord. And just to dwell in that place, that was his heart's desire, his, his big desire. And he knew the ark represented the dwelling place or the resting place of God, the seat of government. And he wanted to have his government established by having the ark close to home. And it's this kind of desire to be a worshiper that David imparted to many other people and worshipers. And that may get into another question, but um, I, I mainly wanted to lay the foundation of why David was so different it's because he constantly had a heart to worship God and to be in his presence and to walk in the statutes of the Lord. In fact, David even said, seven times a day I will praise thee for thy righteous judgments. Did you ever think of praising God for his judgments? <laughs> mm. Mm. But he understood that the judgments of God were altogether righteous. His judgments didn't just mean God coming and doing a whammy on somebody. His judgments were there to vindicate people and to separate the precious from the vile. And that became a foundation for David's government in days ahead. His throne was established in righteousness. I think that really defines, um, you know, the heart of David and how he just had a heart for God. Um, so it kind of leads me to the next question is, right after David's anointed and just prior to his battle with Goliath, there's a very unusual scene where Saul is tormented by his demons and his servants actually suggest this. It wasn't Saul or any of his sons. It was his, actually his servants that suggested um, that they find someone who plays a liar. And, and they said he speaks well. And there's a man near Bethlehem. He's the son of Jesse. And he's a fine-looking man. And as he plays the liar, he may ease your mind, Saul. So Saul says, send me this son. Send me this man, David. And David goes and plays before Saul. And it says, whenever David played, Saul's mind was eased. Then relief would come to Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil spirit which was tormenting him would leave him. So, Scott, being a worshiper, can you help explain uh, what's actually going on here? Actually, the presence of God is what makes the difference. Because the scripture says very clearly that God inhabits the praises of his people. Mm. 
Now, David was a praiser and a worshiper. So when he played his instrument, it wasn't just making beautiful music. It became an expression of who he was. And he was a man who so loved God that he became a transmitter of the presence of God. Now, I'll tell you an interesting story. My violin teacher had another student who had purchased a beautiful Stradivarius violin. Now, they don't come cheap. A Stradivarius nowadays can easily go for three, four thousand mm. dollars. I mean, I'm sorry, three or four million dollars. Uh, there was recently a Stradivarius viola, very rare because he made very few of them, that went to auction for forty-five million dollars. Oh. So, this was a beautiful instrument, and it was a beautiful sounding instrument. The owner of this violin happened to walk in to my teacher's studio while he was teaching another woman violinist. And he asked if he could leave his violin there in the studio for a while while he ran around shopping. You know, you, know, you don't like carrying such a valuable thing around in, to the, the department stores while you're running around town. So this was downtown Chicago, and he just wanted to take some time to do, take care of some shopping things. And uh, this lady said, oh, may I have permission to play this after my lesson? And my teacher looked at him and shook his head at him, but somehow he didn't catch the drift of it and said, oh, sure. And so she went to a practice room after her lesson and started playing on this Stradivarius violin. And then when she was done, returned it to the studio to await the man's arrival to come back and fetch it. A couple of days later, he came into his lesson carrying the violin and said to my teacher, Mr. Willits, he said, uh, something has happened to my violin. It sounds terrible. And my teacher looked at him and said, I tried to warn you not to let that lady play it. Now, this isn't a slap in the face about a woman. It had to do with her approach to the violin. She was a very tense, uptight type person who had a tendency to rather than drawing the sound out of the violin, to press the sound out of it. And it had radically affected the vibrational qualities of the instrument to where it didn't sound good. It had taken on an aspect of her personality. And it took s several days of the other man playing it my teacher just encouraged him, encouraged him to keep playing it. And finally, it began to 
come back to normal again. I shared this just as a little window into the power that is communicated into a substance like a piece of wood that, that makes up a violin. You think, you know, how, how does this frequency that comes out of a person, you know, some people don't like the word vibration, but our body is filled with vibrations because we have an electrical system. Even the heart responds in an, in an electrical manner. So there is a frequency per se, and of course when we play music, it's all vibration. It's a frequency. Every pitch has its own vibration and cycle. So here's this frequency that had a different quality than the owner that was imparted into this instrument temporarily that caused it to take on the character of her personality. Well, King David was not only an excellent musician, of course he wasn't even king yet, but he was a man that went beyond just the, the good feelings of music. He was a man that knew what it was to have the presence of God there when he played his music. And that's why he could write that God inhabits the praises of his people, because he had experienced God coming down into the sphere that he was in. And we experience this many times in corporate worship, where the presence of God comes in in an overwhelming way. There have been services where, where people literally came to reported that there was a fire because it was like like they could see visible fire outside the houses of worship, and it was just the the, the power of God there. Other places where, where there was a real demonstration of the power of God like this, electrical generators would literally shut down. So we know that God can do so many awesome things, and when we become a vehicle of his presence, then that comes through the music that we play. So here's David playing before King Saul. Now, he probably wasn't playing the latest worship tune. Maybe he was. I don't know. He may have just been playing some, some pretty music. But nonetheless, David was a worshiper in his heart. And that heart of worship meant that he was a vehicle for the presence of God. And evil cannot stand very long in the presence of God. And so the scripture is plain that Paul was troubled, uh, that Saul was troubled by an evil spirit. And when David played upon his instrument, this evil spirit would leave. Now I can tell you some stories. The first time I heard it, it just about made my hair stand on end. 
You know, there's a scripture in Corinthians that talks about how we with open face behold the glory of the Lord and are changed into his likeness, even from glory to glory. And I was told by a worship leader, he was actually, at the time that I heard him speak, he was uh, in charge of the worship music at Christ for the Nations in Dallas, Texas. And he had a very close friend who had been on a mission trip to Africa and who was a worship leader. And he had been in a service in the morning, and it had been, a, I guess, a good service. They'd had a time of praise and worship. He was the, also the keyboard player. And at the end of that gathering, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, when you go back, I don't want you to sleep, because he was coming back for a big service that night. He said, I want you to spend your time in my presence worshiping me. And so this man was obedient. And so he comes to the service that night. He gets there early and feels impressed to go out and just play his keyboard maybe 30, 20, 30 minutes before the actual gathering started. But people were coming in and being seated, finding their place. And he started to play his keyboard. And all of a sudden, he heard a shriek. And to his amazement, there's a woman that actually flew 15 feet up in the air. And with this horrific shriek, and when she hit the ground, she was completely set free from the demonic spirit that had been harassing her. And all of a sudden, all over the congregation, for the next hour or so, it's like there wasn't a starting time for the service. They, they were already in the service, and so they just kept going the direction they were going. It was like spontaneous deliverances took place all over this auditorium where people were being set free from evil spirits. And not only that, physical healings just began to manifest all over the auditorium. And after the service, I mean, he was, he was in awe because he's playing music, leading worship all through this time. He gets back to his hotel room. He says, God, will you please explain to me what just happened? And the Lord said, first of all, you were obedient to what I told you to do. And you spent time in my presence. But you spent so much time in my presence that so much of my glory and my presence rested upon you to where you began to bear my image. And when you walked out on the platform and began to play, every demon in that place thought that it was me, the Lord Jesus Christ, that walked out on that platform. And they began to scream in terror. 
And so this was a real lesson of worship for this man. There are many instances in scripture where praise defeats powers of darkness. One time, King Jehoshaphat was very concerned because uh, several different armies had come against Jerusalem and Israel, and he cried out to God. He says, what, what can I do? And the Lord sent a prophet and told him to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord or something to that effect, that, that you know God was going to deliver him, that he didn't need to fear. And uh, he did an amazing thing. He got the praisers and the worshipers and put them out in front of the army. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in an army, of course, but I didn't have uh, some of the high-tech weaponry that we had there, but nonetheless... You know, you're still vulnerable to whatever kinds of weapons they had. And if you're out there playing a musical instrument and just singing, and you don't have all kinds of armor on, you're very vulnerable. And I can just imagine what was going through these musicians' minds as they take their place in the front of the army. And they began singing a song. I think you remember earlier I talked about the Ark of the Covenant having the top of it was called the mercy seat. Well, they began to sing about the mercy of God. And they said, give thanks to the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. And they began to sing this over and over again as they marched before the army. And when they got to the place where these armies were, they found many of them were just laying there dead. And the rest, and any that weren't dead, had fled and left all kinds of stuff behind, you know, goods and monies and, you know, all kinds of things that they, they, they just became partakers of, of whatever they'd left, left behind. And it's uh, an amazing story of how praise drives away our enemies. And there are many kinds of spirits. There are spirits of infirmity. You can read in the New Testament. She, Jesus dealt with many different kinds of spirits. He dealt with deaf spirits, deaf and dumb spirits. He dealt with uh, uh, spirits of infirmity and uh, the I'm not going to get into all the um, theological uh, discussions of whether somebody actually has a demon or is just being demonized uh, and, and all of that um, save that for some other time but nonetheless people do get impacted by the powers of darkness and one of the best weapons that we can exercise is to start to praise God because spirits of heaviness and depression and all of those things begin to lift and, and leave. And uh, many times people are, are physically healed and set free in the midst of praise and worship. 
So, Scott, before we wrap this up, I kind of want to go back to where we were at that first question. We were talking about um, how David had the ark, um, and he had moved it into Jerusalem. And you said he didn't put it back into the Holy of Holies. And I think that kind of moves into the question of um, what is David's tabernacle? And uh, how, can, how do you explain that? To answer that question, I would like to back up just a little bit to something I talked about before. And that was the heart of David as a worshiper. The scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart. And I talked about how David made a military decision, in essence, to go and fetch the ark. That it hadn't been in Jerusalem, uh, never had been in Jerusalem. It had been kept in the tabernacle, which had been on in Gibeon for many years. And then after it was lost in battle to Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, it was kept in the home of a Levite by the name of Abinadab. And David just couldn't stand the fact that that ark, that that glory of God was way off somewhere. And uh, in fact, the scripture gives a description of that place. And I want to read a little bit about it because in this, you will see the heart of David and see what had to take place before the tabernacle of David was established. In Psalm 132, it says, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard of it at Ephratah. We found it in the fields of the wood. Now, you, you may wonder, what on earth is he talking about? He says, we heard of it. Well, the it was referring to the ark. And Ephratah, in essence, is a place by Bethlehem. And that was where this Levite lived. And he lived out in a place was where there was a big field and woods. You know, maybe, maybe he had a, a farm out there. I, I, I don't know. It doesn't go into that much detail, but obviously it wasn't in a city, but it was hidden away, and this guy's home was off the beaten path somewhere out in the fields of the wood. And then David says, we will go into his tabernacles, we will worship at his footstool, arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy saints shout for joy. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of your body will I set upon your throne. 
And if your children will keep my covenant, my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever, here will I dwell, for I have desired it. Now it was important to understand this verse because we see here that it wasn't just David's desire to bring the ark to Jerusalem. It had to do with something God wanted to do. And the Lord said, he had chosen Zion. Well, if you're familiar at all with the tabernacle of David and the place where it was set up, it was upon a, this big hill that they called Mount Zion. And the scripture talks about Zion many, many times, how he has desired Zion and how he loves the tabernacles of Zion. And out of Zion shall go forth the word of the Lord. So David did something very unique. He designed a tabernacle, and in this case, it was really a tent, because that's what the word means in Hebrew. And he puts it on top of this mountain, and it was probably a fairly good-sized tent, and he brings the ark and he puts it in this tent. And the first time he brings it, he's in the process of bringing it, and he's got Aminadab's sons. These are guys that had become accustomed to being around the ark because it had been in their house for years. But David had them make a new cart and put the our ark, they put the ark on this new cart. And it's interesting, David did something that was presumptuous. He followed the model of the Philistines rather than the model of the Lord. The Philistines, after they got visited with uh, these... Uh, <laughs> whatever their problems were in hinder parts. <laughs> they, after, when they sent the ark back, it uh, ended up, you know, in this, this place. So David goes back to this place, and it's actually the place we'd read about in Psalm 132 to Ephratah and the house of Aminadab, and he puts the ark on this cart like I'd already spoken of and he's coming along with it thinking he is fulfilling God's order thinks he's doing it the right way and he's dancing and celebrating and they're playing all these instruments and praising God and in the midst of their praise and worship a terrible thing happens one of these two sons reaches up to steady the ark because it had hit a bump in the road and made it shake on the cart a little. And out of concern for it, he reached out and touched it. Well, they were forbidden by the law 
to even touch it. And he instantly fell dead. And David was very upset. Called off the whole ceremony. He goes back home. And in the meanwhile, the ark gets dropped off at another Levite's house. And his name was Obed-Edom. And it was there for three months. And the blessing of God came on that man's house. The scripture doesn't tell what all those blessings were, but it was something that was very obvious because David became aware of it. And he said, God, how, how can I get the ark to, to Mount Zion? And he went and studied, maybe probably talked to the priests, and found out the ark was supposed to be carried upon the shoulders of the priests. Scripture says the government is upon his shoulders. It's a prophetic word concerning Christ. We, as the body of Christ, he is the head, we are the shoulders. We are to become those who bear the glory and the image of the Lord. We are to become those who become carriers of his presence. So this time David did it right. He put it on the, on the shoulders of the, the Levites and the priests. And, and it is brought up to Mount Zion. It's put into this tent that David had pitched for it. And he establishes praise and worship 24 hours a day. There's one, one of the Psalms that talks about praising him in, in the night. And it's interesting, in the old tabernacle over on Gibeon, it wasn't a place of music. The only thing you heard were the these little tinkling bells on the robe of the high priest. They were like little pomegranates in shape, and they would tinkle. And that was so when the priest went into the Holy of Holies, if, uh, if he fell down dead, like Uzzah did, um, they would notice that the bells quit tinkling, and they'd have to go fetch him out. And so, as far as I understand the tradition, he would always go in there, the high priest would have a rope tied around his ankle. <laughs> Talk about uh, putting the fear of God in a person, you know. You, you didn't go into that place presumptuously. And you didn't touch the ark presumptuously. So here's uh, David. He establishes worshipers that take turns worshiping out on Mount Zion. And I think the tent was big enough, so some of them could go in there. But what David had done, in essence, is transport the equivalent of what was the Holy of Holies from the old tabernacle. Because the old tabernacle didn't have the glory anymore. In fact, that's what happened when the ark was taken in battle. It was uh, the, one of the priest's wives gave birth to a son. And his, she named him Ichabod because the glory was departed. The ark was departed. Ichabod means the glory is departed. So um, I encourage you not to name anybody Ichabod. <laughs> anyway, uh, the awesome thing is that God's presence 
was so much a part of that place that, uh, you know, they, they were just appointed to be a part of that. And the Levites would take turns. They would each take a, a two-hour uh, order of worship or time of worship, and this would go on 24 hours a day. In other words, there would be 12 different courses in one day where a different set of musicians would come in. So we read that by the time David was near the end of his kingdom, he was helping prepare the way for Solomon to build, his, to build a temple for the Lord. And David had wanted to build it, and God told him, no, you've been in too many bloody wars. I'm going to let your son build it. And by the time Solomon's temple was built, the scripture tells us there were 4,000 musicians. That was the kind of multiplication of the gifting that David had. Now, the neat thing is, is that I believe David, you see, David was a minstrel. And there are many minstrels that like to get out there and sing and play their music and do their thing. But David's tabernacle was a corporate expression. So David had to make a transition from a minstrel mentality to a corporate mentality. And I believe he got that from Samuel because Samuel developed what was known as the school of prophets. And those prophets, um, when David was running from Saul, he went and spent some time with Samuel at Naoth. And that's where the school of the prophets were. And these prophets were all musicians. And you can read about how Saul went up, Samuel sent him up to meet them and talked about how they came down from the, this high place of where they had been meeting together and they were all playing their instruments and prophesying, speaking as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so David saw a corporate expression of worship that he had never experienced before. And I believe he ended up taking that experience and bringing it into his tabernacle, into, into what became known as the Tabernacle of David. Now, the fascinating thing about the Tabernacle of David is that it was a type of New Testament worship because the ark had been closed up in the Holy of Holies in the old tabernacle. Nobody had access to it. But all of a sudden, in David's tabernacle, the curtain was opened. And all of the, the Levitical ministry had access to come and stand before the ark and worship the Lord. That was a different type of a priesthood. The awesome thing, because David was a pre, a, a, such a seeker after God's own heart and such a worshiper, that he literally began to move in the kind of ministry foretold of Christ, which was that of king, prophet, and priest. So David moved in priestly type of ministries in many ways, even went in and ate at the table of the showbread, the, the bread from the table of showbread in the tabernacle when he was running from Saul. So uh, God blessed him with things that he wouldn't allow other people to do because he was a man after his own heart. 
And that tabernacle existed for approximately 33 years. Jesus' life was about 33, 33 and a half years. So Jesus, when he was crucified, it tells us the veil was rent in twain. So the Holy of Holies was opened up. So anybody could have looked in there, and if the ark had been there, which it wasn't at that time, it had been been lost somewhere back before the time of the Babylonian captivity. Um, I trust my my study is correct on that, but uh, and I, I don't believe the ark was there at that at that time. Uh, supposedly Jeremiah had taken and hidden it before. Um, Nebuchadnezzar and his armies came and, and took over Jerusalem. So anyway, uh, this type of worship where the veil is open is what is available to us as New Testament worshipers. We have open access to the presence and the glory of God. So, Scott, what is the relevance for today of the Tabernacle of David? I would say it has to do with the prophetic significance of what was prophesied in the book of Amos, also in Isaiah, and then mentioned again in the book of Acts in chapter 15. book of Acts says, I will build again the Tabernacle of David. And in the book of Amos, it says, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. Now, I believe that that is prophetically speaking of what was accomplished at David's tabernacle. I don't think we're literally going to go go build a tent and try and put the ark back in it. If anything, the the Jewish people are seeking to build a temple. And uh, if they can find the location of the ark, put that back in there. That, that would be their desire. But um, the scripture is specifically talking about, about that which is typified in the tabernacle of David, which is the praise, the worship, and the intercession and the manifestation and demonstration of God's glory because all of these are part of it and in it's used in the book of Acts to speak uh, concerning that the tabernacle of David had to do with the Gentiles being brought into the kingdom and James addresses that issue so it, it has to do with the evangelization of the world it has to do with worship, and it also has to do with the demonstration of the glory and power of God in the earth as having a, an outworking in the spiritual dimension of that which is in the natural dimension surrounding the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a literal piece of furniture, but nonetheless, the manifest presence of God was there. In the book of Isaiah, 
chapter 16, verse 5, it says, In mercy shall the throne be established. And he, meaning the Lord, it says, it, 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 I'll read that again. In mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. So it talks about God's throne being established. It talks about that in Isaiah chapter 9, about the increase of his government and his throne continuing and being established in the earth. So what we are seeing now is a manifestation of the glory of God that is about to break forth in the body of Christ that is going to be greater dimension than we have ever seen in the past. And the tabernacle of David is the key. We read about the key of David. The, the tabernacle of David, I believe, is the key, even as the golden incense altar was the last piece of furniture that the priest visited before going into the Holy of Holies. And the golden incense altar was the place of prayer and intercession. And it's where John the, the Baptist's father was there worshiping and offering incense up unto the Lord when the angel of the Lord appeared to him and prophesied to him concerning uh, his son John to be, that was to be birthed. So it's a demonstration and an unveiling of the glory of God. And when people are in worship like that, it's, we see that as the last piece of furniture that the priest visits before going into the Holy of Holies. And we know the veil has been rent, so that signifies praise and worship, this piece of furniture being the last place to visit on our way to the realm of glory that is demonstrated and spoken of in, with the Ark of the Covenant. Thank you, Scott, for your time today. And I really do believe... Um, you helped to explain the worship of David and that mysterious statement that David was a man after God's heart. Before we close out this recording, if the audience wants to learn more about you and your many CDs and books, can you share your website or any way they can learn more about you? Yes, we have a website. It's imwa.org. And that stands for Institute of Music, Worship, and the Arts. And uh, you can also contact us uh, at imwamusic at sbcglobal.net. We don't have all of our books and CDs listed on the website. But we, if you communicate with us, we'd be happy to let you know what we do have. Many of these CDs were put together to provide an atmosphere for your home or in your car to just sit and soak in the presence of God. So we'd love for you to enjoy them. We also have wonderful CDs for, for children and uh, they're fun. They're lots of fun, <laughs> as well as being very edifying. Something else I would mention is that we have, in our school, we also offer a degree in music and worship ministry. So the basic degree is a two-year program, associate's degree, but somebody can go on 
uh, further than that if they so desire to do so. Before we end the program today, I'd like to mention that Scott Buss has gifted us with three of his worship CDs, The Canopy of His Love, The Fragrance of His Love, and Father We Love You. We'd like to pass these CDs on to the audience, first come, first serve basis, free of charge. If you're interested, please email us at messagetokings at gmail.com. Send an email if you're interested, and we'll confirm your address and mail them to you. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss the giant Goliath from a Jewish traditional perspective.